continuing this morning in a multi-part series, a series I don't see the end of anytime soon, uh, but it needs to be sooner than later. But I, I have to address some really big issues. And today is one of those, I think, big issues. And let me ask some questions. Um, the question is this, what is the origin of the Sabbath? If you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you know that the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Where did this Sabbath day to keep it holy begin? Now, some believe, especially in our day, well, it began on Mount Sinai when God, by his finger, uh, the execution of divine power on these stone tablets, etched in them these words, remember the Sabbath day. Some people hold that view. One of the problems with that view is that if you go to Exodus 16, four chapters before the Mount Sinai incident, you have Israel keeping a Sabbath there before Sinai. So there's a, at least an orange flag. It's actually a dozen red flags. Um, others... And especially, uh, I would say, tra the traditional Protestant view, and certainly uh, the Reformed view and the confessional view, is that the Sabbath has its origins in God, so far as everybody agrees, but not at Mount Sinai. It predates Mount Sinai, and it actually predates Exodus 16, Israel in the wilderness wanderings. It goes all the way back to creation. So both views see it as originating in God and revealed by God to creatures, one says it waited to Sinai. The other says it didn't wait till Sinai. It was made for man when man was made. Those echoing the words of Jesus. So the sermon title today is The Origin of the Sabbath. Where did it come from? And it, this is crucial for many reasons. I just want you to think about what's happening, by the way, all over the world today. I've said this before, but I think it helps. Christian congregations are gathering for public worship. There's one right over there, and there's one, I think, up there as well on, on our own property. Every Sunday, this takes place in all the continents of God's earth. First day of the week, Christians gather for public worship. What seems like what's always been the case has, in fact, not been the case. It hasn't always been that way on God's earth where people professing faith in the Messiah gather on the first day of the week for public worship. There was a day when weekly first day of the week meetings for worship was, you know, the new kid on the block. And I'm, I'm talking about the first century. That was a new phenomenon on the earth. People gathering, professing Christ as God and man and as the only hope of salvation, gathering on the day of the week, the first day of the week for acts of public worship. That was once new. Slowly but surely, it started to permeate, permeate the ancient uh, Middle East, and then it got up to Europe, and it's all the way over here, and on all the continents of the earth as I speak today. Now, most Christians who think first day worship every week is distinctly Christian, because it is, think so because of the resurrection of our Lord on the first day, right? Most of us, if not all of you, think that way. Well, why would Christians want to meet on the first day? Because of the resurrection of Christ. You read the New Testament, you see there's connections made there, and they made the connections. 
This is no small thing, by the way, especially for Jewish Christians in the first century. Could you see yourself as maybe a teenager who believed in the Lord Jesus and saying, oh, okay, I'll I'll go to the Sabbath school, I'll go to the synagogue on Saturday, but I'm going to go meet with the Christians on Sunday because the Messiah has come and he was raised from the dead. You know, if your father would say, what are you talking about? Get that stuff out of your head, you know. One thing that many of the churches who are gathering today may have in common, not just gathering, but it's singing. How many churches have you been to who have sang Amazing Grace, for instance? That's a pretty common hymn among all denominations of Christians. John Newton wrote it, by the way, raised in a split home. Father was a worldling. Mother was a faithful Christian Anglican. And he went his father's way, became a slave trader, got smitten in his conscience, I think out in the water, repented of his sins, and became a a minister in the Church of England and wrote a lot of hymns. Not only did John Newton, uh, an Anglican minister in the late 18th century, write this hymn, but he wrote another one. And I want you to turn to hymn number 320. Hymn number 320. Because unlike Newton's Amazing Grace... My hunch, my gut tells me, not many churches sing this hymn written by the same author. I want you to notice the words, safely through another week, God has brought us on our way. Let us now a blessing seek. By the way, if you looked at the heading on the top of the hymnal, you already know this section's on the Lord's Day, right? So you know he's talking about the Lord's Day. Let us now a blessing seek, waiting in his courts today, temple language, day of all the week, the best. Now watch this one. Emblem of eternal rest. If you don't know what that means, at least you know that, wow, that's, that sounds good. The Lord's Day is an emblem, a symbol of a rest yet to come? Hmm. Line two. While we pray for pardoning grace through the dear Redeemer's name, show thy reconciled face. Manifest your presence to us in a favorable way. Take away our sin and shame from our worldly cares set free. May we rest Ah, there's another old word found in the Bible. May we we rest this hour, oops, this day in thee. He sees a distinct kind of rest that's appropriate for Christians to enter into on this day of the week. Next line. Here we come Thy name to praise. What do you think he's talking about? Just keep reading. Where, where is he going? Here. Let us feel thy presence near. May thy glory meet our eyes. Here it is. While we in thy house, temple language again, church, appear. Here, afford us, Lord, here's a prayer, a taste of our everlasting Feast, 
Now, that feast goes back with the word rest. So whatever the rest is, he's saying you can use a functional synonym, feast. And whatever feast is, you can say rest. And I know John Newton enough. I could say, hey, are you talking about the eschatological feast or the spiritual feast we get in public worship, including feasting on Christ in the supper? And I think he would say all of it because it is an emblem of eternal rest, but it's an emblem, a symbol. It's a now thing as well. So there's a not yet, and there's an already. May thy gospel's joyful sound conquer sinners, comfort saints. May the fruits of grace abound, bring relief for all complaints. Thus may all our Sundays prove. You're not looking at the words. Thus may all our, now watch what he does. Sabbaths prove till we join the church above. Now Newton is obviously describing public worship on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, what we call Sunday. But note well his last words. Thus may all our Sabbaths prove till we join the church above. He identifies the first day of the week as our Sabbath. Who's our there? Christians. You ever read in our confession of faith? The Christian Sabbath? Why do they call it the Christian Sabbath? There's distinctly, there's something distinct about the first day of the week that's connected to Christ and that's connected to rest. He also identifies the first day of the week as an emblem of eternal rest and potentially as a taste of everlasting, of our everlasting feast. Because I say that because, I say potentially because he uses these words addressing them to the Lord. Here, afford us, Lord. That's a prayer. Lord, afford us something. Please grant us something. What? A taste of our everlasting feast. Does public worship automatically put before us a feast no matter what God does? No. God has to make it happen. That, that's what's happening there. And he connects the taste of our everlasting feast to this, while we in thy house appear. So what he's saying is God has promised, that's why he's praying, Lord, afford us this. God has promised to give us a taste of that world in this world, and in this case, when the church gathers. And so we're asking him, Lord, afford us that. We need a taste of glory. We need a down payment of, of the full harvest of resurrection glory and blessedness that's going to come. We're weak, we're feeble, uh, help us. So it's an outstanding hymn, and it contains pretty standard doctrine among older Protestants. Uh, I would say older Protestants, all the way up to the beginning, the middle of the 20th century, because you can do Google searches on D.L. Moody, for instance, and Lord's Day or Sabbath, and it, it'll frighten some of you. Wait, I thought he was a dispensationalist. They don't say that. Well, they used to. They used to say, Sunday's the Lord's Day. It's the Christian Sabbath. There's something unique about Sundays for Christians. All Christians agree with that. Now, whether or not all Christians make it look unique in their lives the same, that's a different issue, and we all know the answer to that. 
He calls it the best day of the week. I like that. And the reason why I like that is because I get my feelings hurt when you don't come. I like that because I think he's right. It is the best day of the week. And when you order your life, your week around the day and not the day around the week, it frees you up. You're free from all that stuff to do this and other spiritual activities, either by yourself or with the saints. It's the best day of the week. Why is that? Why is it the best day of the week? Because it's an emblem of eternal rest. A sign signifying something accomplished and yet something to enjoy. In other words, we're going to get rest out there in the eternal state because somebody has already entered into the rest. And we haven't gotten all that that one obtained for us by entering into rest, but we will get it someday. And every Lord's Day is God saying, if you're Christ's, you're going to get more rest. You're going to get more grace. And in the meantime, I'll give you what you need to live for me. Emblem of eternal rest. It's the day Christians gather for public worship in the hopes of getting a taste of our everlasting feasts. When you're driving to church, say, Lord, this is me again. I'm no super saint. But me and my brothers and sisters, we desire a taste of our everlasting feast. Come down, the language of scripture. Come down, as if God's not with us. You know what that means? It's a, it's a, it's a improper statement. Not physically come down, but manifest your already present presence to your people in a special manner. It's the Christian's weekly Sabbath till we join the church above. Now, some of these things are foreign to many years hearing my voice. Um, not too long ago, that was not the case. But the real issue confronting us is this. Does Newton's hymn accurately reflect the teaching of Holy Scripture? I'm going to argue that it does. I think it does. And I want to show you why by considering, first of all, the origin of the Sabbath. Note, I didn't say the origin of the fourth commandment. Where did the fourth commandment come from? God. When? In the form in which we have it in Scripture when Moses wrote it. And it probably was in an abbreviated form on the stone tablets. I didn't say the origin of the fourth commandment. I did say the origin of the Sabbath, and I mean by Sabbath, a day of rest for man as a divine institution. So that's the question we're asking. When did God reveal to man that there is this thing called Sabbath for him, that is, a day of rest in distinction from days of work? So when did the work-rest cycle begin for man? We know when it began for God, when you just read the first two chapters of the Bible, was creation. He worked, and then it was completed, and then Scripture says, and we'll, you can turn there, by the way, we're going to be there the rest of the morning. Genesis 2, 1 through 3, God rested. The Scriptures clearly teach that God instituted a Sabbath for man, for his benefit, by his divine example of working and resting for us, in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. And I want to look at that. 
We're going to look at that text. That's going to be our major text this morning. And I want to put it in its context first, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, and then look at the elements, the important elements of the verses in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. So the question is, when did this thing we call the Sabbath begin? Genesis 2, 1 through 3. So let's think about the context. Genesis 1 is about six days of the creation week, and the creator is God. And as we'll read in Genesis 2, this is a work of God. He worked in creation. He did something. He operated. He produced things. Man takes center stage in one sense among the creatures at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when we're told that man, male and females made in God's image. Man was created in the image of God and is therefore responsible to be like God according to his creaturely capacities. And then Genesis 2, jumping over our passage, verses 4 and following, focus on man as the image of God and specifically Adam in his, I've used this word before, Edenic vocation. Remember, God made, uh, made Adam outside the garden. Then he put him in the garden, gave him the prohibitions, put him to sleep, formed Eve from Adam, and all those things. And Genesis 2-4 starts focusing in there. After the six days of divine work, creation, and the seventh day, divine rest, there's this focus back on the sixth day on man created in the image of God, God being he, the divine example or exemplar for man to follow in according to his creaturely capacities. You know, where did we get our seventh day week from? God. Read the first two chapters of the Bible. It should be very clear. You know that there are scholars that say, oh, no, we didn't get the seventh day week from God. And that's not what Moses is really talking about there. We got it from, well, God, but through Moses, yeah. But only when Israel was constituted under the Mosaic Old Covenant. We didn't get it at creation. It came later. There are scholars who teach that. I don't buy their books. But I buy books that, where they have articles, and I get to read them. And, and all you have to do is look up the word weak, in your English Bible, and you might be able to use a concordance, uh, maybe if you have software, you can find where the Hebrew, normal Hebrew word for week is used way before Exodus 20, and the Sabbath was given, the so-called institution of the seven-day week with Israel. It predates Israel, it goes all the way back. So here's the, the, the context, God's work of creation, God's finishing his work, his rest. Adam uh, put in the garden to cultivate and keep it. And I'm not going to go over the arguments here, but I've done this before. Those two words together are very interesting. Cultivate and keep are priestly. It's a priestly couplet. That is two words separated by the word and. And it's used several times in subsequent writings of Moses concerning the priests in the temple, which shouldn't surprise us because you remember where is Eden? Up on a mountain. It's called God's Mountain, God's, um, God's Mountain in Ezekiel. And it's up on a mountain. It has uh, water coming out of it, flowing down, and it has 
uh, gold and other materials like that. It's the first temple, Eden is. And Adam's the first prophet and priest and king responsible to, to, to take the culture of the garden, sinful sons of God in relation to God, in communion with God, spreading throughout the earth. Now, we know that what happened. Adam didn't even get out of Eden. He got exiled out of Eden because he allowed the devil to come in and take dominion over what he should add dominion over. But nonetheless, he was there. He failed to comply with the covenant God had posed upon him. And not only did he not subdue the earth and fill it with others like him, he sinned and brought a curse upon himself and the rest of us. And that curse actually extends to the earth as well. The earth is is waiting for the the full redemption of the sons of God, Romans chapter 8. Adam never got farther than the garden in in his Edenic covenantal vocation. He sinned in the Eden paradise, and as a result, he was exiled. So in order to understand the creator's rest, because we're just putting Genesis 2 in context now, we must have a firm grasp upon the context in which it comes to us, God works to create the earth, then God rests. He ceases from his creative work and then enters into another manner of activity, rest. Okay, that's it. That's the context. So let's look at the elements of Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. First of all, note we have here creation completed. Creation is completed. The divine work of creation has completed. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed. There it is. And all their hosts, by the seventh day, God completed his work. Okay? So the divine act of creation in six days is called a divine work, which he had done. That's Genesis 2 verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. So God, by the way, did did it take God six days to create or did God take six days to create? There's a little difference in the way I put that, but it has mammoth differences. If it took God six days to create, then he gave all he had and it's all he could do. And he probably got tired and that's what rest means. Or if God, on the other hand, took six days never exhausting divine power, never getting tired. The Lord our God, he doesn't grow weary, Isaiah. If he took six days, then we can ask the question, why did he take six days? He's setting up a paradigm, an example for man to take six days and do this thing called work, not the divine work of creation ex nihilo. We don't We're not creators. God doesn't say, okay, I did my work of creation. Now you create your own universe and have your own planets and your own people. It can't be that. It has to be according to our creaturely capacities. We are to work. So the question is, if the divine work is a paradigm for us, is the divine rest also a paradigm for us? So God goes from working, creating, Two, sustaining that which he had created. And you remember, I've done this several times, and if you're a newbie here, sorry. But creation is, a, is God building a temple. God worked, he built a temple. God worked, then God rested. In verses 2 and 3, Moses informs us three times of God's 
work. Three times, God's work, creation, God's work. Here's what one man says. In the ordinary, it is the ordinary word for a human work, and he gives other texts in scripture. And it is therefore a little unexpected that the extraordinary divine activity involved in creating heaven and earth should be so described with a word that's usually used from just males and females doing stuff. It may be, as another man suggests, that this word has been deliberately chosen to hint that man should stop his daily work on the seventh day. The phraseology of Exodus 40, 33, and Moses finished the work, is particularly close to this verse and suggests that the erection of the tabernacle, that was the work of Moses that he finished, suggests that the erection of the tabernacle is being compared to God's creation of the world. Some of you know, I think he's exactly right. You go read the rest of the book of Genesis, and terms and phrases that start out in Genesis 1 and 2 are utilized of priests, either in temples or with Moses, with reference to the tabernacle. But those words first start to be used by Moses in Genesis 1 and 2, with reference to Adam and, and, and the Garden of Eden and... God's special presence there and the cultivating and keeping of it and all that. So could it be that the creator's acts of work and rest, okay, because we have work completed, and then our next observation from the text is going to be divine rest. Could it be that the creator's acts of work and rest suggest that man was to follow this divine pattern? Could it be? Now, most of you have been here long enough ago, Pastor B, we know what you're we know your answer. Of course it could be. Not only could it be, I think it is. Now some balk at this. Here's how they push back. <sighs> divine acts of creation and rest is an example, divine exemplar, exemplar for creatures to follow in. I can't create, crea- crea- uh, creation. I can't make things ex nihilo out of nothing. God spoke and it was done. Richard Barcellus spoke and nothing happened. I use the language of Psalm 33 on purpose because here's the pushback. Divine work and divine rest can't be imperatival, that is, some form of a command, we man's to follow it, because we can't do what God did. That's not what I'm saying, do what God did. I'm saying God did something, and creatures are to do something in light of what God did on a creaturely level, according to their creaturely capacities. Now listen to Psalm 33. This is verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and God said, you remember in Genesis 1, and by the breadth of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. All creatures created in the image of God are to fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him for, here's the basis, universal fear of God is commanded in this psalm. Universal Awe, standing in awe of the Lord, is is clear in this psalm. Four, verse nine, he spoke and it was done. What's that referring to? Then God said, then God said, then God said. 
it was an it was a divine act bringing things into existence that had no existence that's the basis of universal fear universal awe required of all image bearers he commanded and it stood fast so here notice that all the earth is called to fear the Lord, and all the inhabitants of the world are called to stand in awe of him. And what's the basis in the psalm for the universal call to fear and awe, which are creaturely acts of worship? I already read it. For he spoke, and it was done. Excuse me. He commanded, and it stood fast. What did he command and cause to stand fast? That is, come into existence and stay into existence. Then God said, then God said, then God said. Both the fact of creation and the divine action of causing that which was made to stand fast, that's creation and providence, are grounds upon which universal praise is due to the creator. See what I'm getting at here? Psalm 33 says exactly what I'm saying about work and rest. It says it about creation. God acts and everybody's supposed to be in awe of him and fear him. We're supposed to look at that which has come into existence and and according to our creaturely abilities, people looked over there, by the way, uh, trace it back to its ultimate cause, which can only be God, as he has revealed himself both in nature and scripture. So God's initial act of creation warrants demands, requires praise from all image bearers, as does God's subsequent act of providence toward that which had been made, causing it to stand fast. So both creation, providence, and creatures in God's image predate the psalm, right? We're reading Psalm 33. What predates the psalm? Creation, providence, and creatures. That came first. But the psalmist is saying, when that came, this obligation started. The obligation doesn't start when the psalmist pins the words. The obligation for men and women to be in awe of God and fear him, acts of creaturely worship, is based on the act of God in creation and causing that which was created to stand fast or providence. Read Romans, uh, Acts 14 and Acts 17. Paul does the same thing in in witnessing about God and Christ. So if praise of the creator due to these divine acts is a creaturely obligation after the fall, when the psalm was written, surely it was an obligation prior to the fall, right? If after the fall, we're supposed to look at the creation and go, oh, and perform acts of creaturely worship in light of creation, then certainly before the fall, The mere act of creation warranted, required of Adam and Eve acts of of worship. Okay, I got some nods on that one. At least one person is following. God's acts in creation are grounds upon which image-bearing creatures are solicited to act in accord with their creaturely capacities in response to him and Adam and Eve were such creatures. I think that's pretty clear. And Psalm 33 is the clincher to me when people say, oh, mere divine acts can't be grounds upon which sinners are supposed to do anything. 
Well, read the Bible. Read the Psalms. He has not left you without witness. He has given you rains and seasons and all that stuff. Providence. Divine providence is to be traced back back to the beneficence, the, the kindness, the goodness of God. So that's the first element of the verses I want to look at. The second is divine rest. So creation completed. Now we have divine rest. And he rested. Do you think it was like, man, that was hard. That was a good workout. I'm tired. I need to get some protein in me, get replenished, get some water. Obviously, God was not tired. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, never faints nor is weary. Are you thankful for that? Never faints, nor is weary. You ever faint? Well, I have fainted before. My wife will tell you afterwards, it's when I get blood taken out of me. I tell them all the time. I don't like that, sticking a thing in me. I might faint. Oh, yeah, I'll hit it the first time. Eight times later, trying to get it, faint. Okay, not everybody has fainted. Have you ever become weary? Just plain old exhausted and tired, and then it starts affect your, your body starts affecting your soul and you get cranky and you know all that stuff I, I've seen you that way brother I've been on vacation with you uh, and you me that's not God okay God doesn't faint or grow weary so this rest whatever it means it doesn't mean God rested for the same reason that we have to rest We have to rest because when we exert, energy depletes. When God executes, I used two different words there, when God executes his plan, creation and providence and redemption, it doesn't deplete divinity or power from him. God doesn't have to say, you know what, I've been working all week, i got to rest. So it must signify something, though, the divine rest, and he rested. It has to signify something different from exhaustion, right? We could rest, need rest because we're exhausted, but God doesn't get exhausted. Now listen to Isaiah again, Isaiah 66, verse 1. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? That's the words of Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? You have creation reverberations in those words. Heaven earth, you have, you have throne, footstool, kingly, royalty. This is a royal kind of thing. You have something earthly again, house on the earth. And then you have this divine resting. Where is a place that I may rest? So here heaven and earth are related to each other. Heaven and earth are identified as God's throne. Kind of interesting. Heaven and earth are God's throne. God created heaven and earth to rule over. 
The Creator's rest indicates the completion of the earth as his cosmic temple and the announcement of his enthronement over it as king. I think that's what rest signifies there. I'm done. I created the cosmos. It's my temple. I inhabit it. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. But they're connected because they're both creatures created. And now I'm going to enter my rest. Now I'm going to take a posture of sovereignly ruling that which I have made. So this is a royal rest he enters into. This being the case, the main event of the week of creation occurred on what day? The main event of the week of creation occurred on what day? I used to always say, day six. Why? Because that's when our ancestors were made. But I have since concluded, you know what? I think the crescendo, the drum roll, please, starts at, you know, Genesis 1-1, and it gets louder and louder and louder, and the cymbals crash at the divine rest because that's the apex of it. God has completed his temple. God has completed the cosmos. God has made the heavens and the earth to rule over. It's his throne. Earth is his footstool. He sits down, and he rules. That was... That's now how I view the apex here. And you know what, dummy, rich? You had all the books where the good old guys used to argue this. Even the Puritans said that. The apex of the creation week is the divine rest because it's the goal. Why was creation made in the first place? For God to rule over it. It's not only the goal for God, it's the goal, goal for man as well. But Adam, he didn't do it, did he? He didn't do a very good job at all. As far as we can tell, before his wife even bore children, he sinned. And we know the consequences of that. The work of God in the creation week reaches its zenith, its apex, its Mount Everest, on the day God rested, the seventh day of earth's first week. Here's a contemporary scholar who has nothing to do with the Westminster Confession or our confession, and I wouldn't even... I don't even know if he likes the Puritans, okay? So this, this author says this. On the seventh day, we finally discover that God has been working to achieve a rest. This seventh day is not a theological appendix to the creation account just to bring closure now that the main event of creating people has been reported. That's what I used to think a long time ago. Rather, it intimates the purpose of creation and of the cosmos. God does not set up the cosmos, the created realm, so that only people will have a place. He also sets up the cosmos to serve as his temple so that people would have a place in his presence, I could add. So this understanding of God's rest puts peculiar importance upon the divine rest. If that's what it's signifying, that's pretty important. It is not a mere postscript. That's the way I used to look at it. Oh, yeah, Genesis 2, 1, through God, kind of P.S. P.S., God completed his work, he rested, and he blessed the seventh day and, and sanct- hallowed it and sanctified it. But go on to the real big stuff, Adam and Eve. That's the way I used to look at this. Now, in the last 20 years at least, I've been saying, no, this, no. I think all the guys that were on my shelves that I didn't read in the 90s, that I started reading in the late 90s, uh, they were right. And this goes way back. People have thought this way for a long, long time. Why didn't somebody teach me this? And then I'd look at myself in the mirror and say, you're lazy. Your library has all the books. Read the books. Go away. Read some books. You know, like that movie. 
I think this is the best way to understand it. This understanding of God's rest puts peculiar importance on it. It is not a mere postscript. It's an exclamation point. It's like, it's like the big deal of creation is that God made it to rule over. And his divine rest is God taking a, for lack of a better word, a posture of the providential ruler and reigner over that which he has created. What do you think he wants from Adam? He wants Adam to be his co-regent, his vice-regent, I mean, on a creaturely level. Obviously, Adam didn't do that. Some of you know the name G.K. Beale. He calls the seventh day God's climactic resting from his creative work. Now, now we got to be theologians here. By the way, most of us like R.C. Sproul. You know why? Because he forces you to think. So I'm just being like R.C. Sproul humbly right now. If Adam was to work after the divine pattern, and I think he was, was he also to rest after the divine pattern? I'll go even farther. Was Adam to arrive at some kind of rest in order not to work like he once did? Because the divine pattern is work, rest, and it's not work, rest, work, rest, work, rest. It's work unto rest. So is the creature called to work, rest, work, rest, work, rest, work, rest, ad infinitum, or whatever rest means for creature, could the creature, Adam, have gone from the work-rest cycle, completed his responsibility, and then entered into some permanent state of rest. Getting some nods there. The more your blood's bibbling, the more you're going, well, yeah, I've never heard it put that way, or I've heard it put that way, but I never understood it, but I get it now, yeah. I don't think Adam's was perpetually work-rest, work-rest, work-rest ad infinitum. There seems to be something there because we know that Adam was the first sinner and all have sinned and fall short of something that Adam wasn't created with, the glory of God. Let's keep going. We have one more expositional observation here. The seventh day was blessed and sanctified. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. And there's a reason annexed to this blessing and sanctification. Watch this. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now, this is the only day of the creation week that is said to be blessed and sanctified. So it is hereby, by God's word, written by Moses here in Genesis, hereby set apart, not by the written word of God, it was set apart by God himself. It has a unique status and a unique function. Now, Moses doesn't tell us much about its unique status or function, but we got a lot of scripture after Moses writes Genesis 1 and 2, don't we? We're going to do that later, allow the Bible to help us understand the Bible. What a novel idea. God, I need to, I want to know what Genesis 2 means. Read the rest of the Bible. It's the written word of God. It's God's word on God's word. And when you have God's word on God's word, you have God's word on God's word. Okay? God did not do this out of any felt need or in order for him to become complete. God rested and, and, he, and he met his felt needs. Oh, I need to rest. Or now I'm completed. Now I'm saved or whatever. He did this for us. 
Just as he took, took six days to create for man, the creator's rest is a teaching tool for man, as are the days, six days of creation. It not only tells us something about what God did a long time ago, he built a cosmic temple, then rested, but it also is also a symbol, these are important words, so I'm going to read them, the divine rest at the creation is also a symbol, a sign that's signifying something and might be pointing to something in the future, a symbol of what could and will happen in the future for man. You know, Christians will say, oh, yeah, well, we have an eternal Sabbath. Okay. All right. Was this divine Sabbath rest pointing to that thing, the eternal state? And I'm saying, yeah, I think it did. Just as the work, you want me to get really Christological now? Okay, Jess says yes. We might have to take this out because people are going to freak out at this. The, the, the divine work of creation typifies the redemptive work of Christ. Sorry. The divine rest at creation typifies him having accomplished his work, entering into his rest. Okay, back to the notes. The divine blessing and sanctification of the seventh day is a service to man for man's benefit and imitation. Here's what another man says that really doesn't care about the post-Reformation Protestant uh, reformed documents. Finally, as the creator rested on the seventh day from all his work, so Genesis 2, 1 through 3 implies man should also take a break from his labors. If the other parts of creation were designated for man's benefit, so too was the Sabbath. Now, in my notes, it says end of sermon. And I'm glad because I still have 12 minutes. End of sermon. But it's not the end of the sermon. It's the end of the exposition of Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Now, what I'm going to do very briefly, well, briefly, not sure how very it, it will be, is um, allow other parts of Scripture to condition our minds in interpreting that part of Scripture. Do you know there's a school of thought out there? I was actually taught it by only one of my professors in the seminary. That if you're studying Genesis 1 and 2, you can't use stuff over here because the original readers and the original writers of Genesis 1 and 2, Moses and his audience, wouldn't have had the stuff over there in the New Testament or the prophets of the psalm. If they didn't have it, they couldn't use it to interpret what was being said. You can't use it. You know what I say about that? Phooey. It's not Protestant. It's not even historically Christian to restrict a text's meaning to what I think the original human author or audience would have believed it to mean. Here's what I'm saying. If God elsewhere comments on that text, why not take God's word for it? I'm sorry if, if you think so highly of me, but I'll take God, God's word over my word every day. Well... I don't do that consistently. I should. I'll take God's word over anybody else's word. Forever, O oh Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. 
and on earth because he's preserved the written word for us to consider this day. So what we're going to do now is we say, okay, Barcelos gave the exposition, uh, prove it. I'll say, okay, God helped me expound those verses by saying things elsewhere in scripture that sheds interpretive light on the divine work and rest cycle in Genesis. So let's go to Exodus, for instance, Exodus 20.11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. When did God bless the seventh day and make it holy? It's a good question. The word for makes verse 11 the basis for the fourth commandment up in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now consider that Exodus 20.11 refers both to God's rest and man's Sabbath. I'm going to borrow from somebody I often disagree with, but uh, he's right here. It is important to ask what Sabbath does Exodus 20.11 refer to? Does Sabbath here refer to God's rest after creating the world or to man's own Sabbath rest? It must refer to both. He's right. The first sentence of Exodus 20.11 refers to God's own rest, but Sabbath in the second sentence must refer to the Sabbath of verse 8, the weekly Sabbath that God requires of Israel. Exodus 20.11 sees an identity between these. When God took his own rest from his creative labors and rested on the seventh day, which he hallowed and blessed, he also hallowed and blessed a human Sabbath, a Sabbath for man. The Sabbath was made for man, and not man the Sabbath. Jesus said those words in Mark 2.27. In other words, same author goes on, when God blessed his own Sabbath rest in Genesis 2.3, he blessed it as a model for human imitation. So Israel's to keep the Sabbath because, according to Genesis 2, God hallowed and blessed man's Sabbath as well as his own. Here's what John Owen says, that in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, it is the day of the Sabbath, or God's rest and ours. I hope you saw that there. It's, it's it's, we could say Israel's rest because God had already previously hallowed and sanctified the seventh day at, uh, at creation, at the end of the creation week there. He says, that's the basis for you keeping Sabbath. Now, these authors go farther and say, and therefore there was a responsibility to keep a weekly Sabbath before Exodus 20. But you could see why elsewhere, like in Isaiah 58.3, my holy day. It's, not, it's a capital M there. Yahweh has a day, a Sabbath day. Why? Because this peculiar divine rest way back in the pages of Scripture. Also, this is why it is said to be something for man. God made it. The Sabbath was made for man, Mark 2.27. The Sabbath is God's because of his example and institution. The Sabbath is for man because God made it for our benefit. It's not only for ancient or contemporary Jews. Jesus, uh, in, and we'll look at Mark, Mark later. But Jesus didn't say the Sabbath was made for the Jews. He said the Sabbath was made for man, and man was made 
not made for the Sabbath. The making of man and making of Sabbath are pretty close together there. You don't have the making of the man and the making of the Sabbath 1,500 or 4,000 years later. You have basically man-made and Sabbath-made at relatively same time, the creation week. He made it for man. And his example at creation is imperatival for man. Listen to Mark uh, 2, 27, 28. And he was saying to them the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Oops. My holy day. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Uh-oh. This is big trouble for Jesus. We'll deal with the text in a later sermon. But this is huge. It's a massive claim by our Lord. Not the Sabbath was made for the Jews, but made for man. In other words, it's a divine institution. It predates the ancient Jews under the Mosaic Covenant. Was made, uh, man was made without a Sabbath. Then a Sabbath was made for the benefit of man. We can put it that way. Jesus is saying what I've been trying to say. Or I'm saying what Jesus has already said. That's probably a better way to put it, isn't it? In other words, it is a divine institution that predates the ancient Jews. Also, Jesus claims his lordship extends to that which God instituted at creation. There's an implicit assertion of the divine nature of the Son of God. He has authority over that which God has instituted at creation. Jesus is Lord of a creational institution, the Sabbath, which the Old Testament says is God's my holy day. No wonder John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That's not new language in the Bible. Could Jesus' lordship over the Sabbath imply he can do whatever he wants with it since it's his? Yeah. One more text. Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. We're finished. There, this is New American Standard because I think the translation's better and we're going to be dealing with this passage in the near future, so I'll do the details later. But just listen to these words. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest. Sabbatismos is the Greek word only used once in the New Testament but used many times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the LXX, you've probably seen that before. Sabbath rest for the people of God. There now remains a Sabbath keeping, is I think even the more better translation, for the people of God, for, here's the basis, for the remaining Sabbath for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has capitalize H right here, himself also rested from, capitalize H right here, his works. We got works and rest. As God did from his. Okay, this isn't creation. It's echoing creation. God worked and God rested. Now somebody else has worked and entered rest. And because this person has finished his work and entered at rest, There is, remaining for the people of God, a Sabbath rest. That's very interesting. 
You see, the basis for a continuing Sabbath rest for the people of God, I think, is here. For someone has entered rest from work just as God did at his creation. Now, last week I kept saying, and all the Sunday school children said, Jesus. I didn't do a detailed exposition of Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. But I think you saw it. If you take it that way, you go, you go oh, my, okay, all right. God worked. God rested. Adam worked. Adam got cursed and fell into sin. He never got there. Jesus worked, entered his rest. He suffered, he entered glory. He suffered, he was raised on the third day. But I'm raining on my next sermon, so I have to stop. It's all about Jesus, isn't it? Because the first Adam failed. God doesn't tell us we have to do what Adam failed to do. We can't. We're unable to do it. We're not sinless sons of God in communion with God who represent others. Jesus is called the last Adam for a reason. He takes all his seed where Adam failed to take his seed. He takes them to that rest. He takes them to glory. And he does it by virtue of his love and and benevolence toward us and beneficence and, and goodness and kindness for his glory and for our good, freely, sovereignly, lavishing all that we need to get to glory upon us and helping us show and testify to his goodness even through the dark valleys of life on earth as it is. What more can we do than just, since I can't repay him, just give myself away, as the hymn writer says. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. We pray that you would help us to know it, to know it well, to think through it deeply, to use our minds for your glory, to draw out conclusions that are life-changing and practical for us so that we might better live for your glory. We pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.